This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. It's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 57 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I am bringing back an interview I did several years ago, actually before I even had a podcast. In this conversation, I talk with Jill Stodder, who is one of the school psychologists that I worked with when I was in the school systems. And we just kind of hopped on a really informal Zoom call and just shared a little bit about how we, number one, worked together to determine how we made students eligible for services. As you know, if you are someone working in the school systems, if you're involved in special education at all, you know that the process of eligibility can be so confusing for everyone involved, even the experts who are the ones doing the evaluation. And we actually recorded this interview several years after response to intervention really was in full swing. And even though some of this information might be things that you have heard before if you are a teacher or if you are a speech pathologist or a school psychologist, I think it can be really helpful to just revisit the whole process. And also something else that we discussed was how we worked together to navigate all of these 
legal changes because really the thing that I took away from this conversation is that the laws are always going to be changing. There's always going to be different mandates coming down that we have to be aware of. But the thing that is going to be your saving grace is being able to work together with the other members of the IEP team. Now, if you are a parent, I know that, number one, this process is definitely confusing for you, and I know that because it's confusing for us, the ones who are helping you to work through this process. So I think that this conversation will be really helpful for anyone who is involved in supporting school-age kids in any way, whether you are a professional or whether you are a parent. Sometimes just going back to the basics of how the process works can be really helpful. So if you have a child or if you're working with children who are going through the process of eligibility for special education, you'll find this conversation really helpful. And if you're working in the schools, you will also find it helpful just from a standpoint of troubleshooting. Some of those conflicts that might come up when you are working with a team and the team members aren't agreeing. So uh, I was really fortunate to have a good working relationship with the school psychologist that I worked with. And I've heard so many horror stories of drama and conflict. And so I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to work with the people that I did. So that's why I wanted to share this interview to just kind of share some insights and takeaways that I was able to get from working as a team member. And then also I wanted to get Jill's perspective as well, because she was very involved in the process when my district was initially trying to figure out response to intervention when we made that transition from the old way of qualifying students for for services. Um, and, and if you have a child who has a learning disability and you are considering that possible eligibility, uh, this conversation will be really helpful for you. Now, one of the things that is a part of response to intervention is having a solid evidence-based intervention in place, whether it be something that you do preventatively before you consider whether or not a student should be evaluated for special education. And then, of course, you have to know if a student becomes eligible, what should we do with them after that? And so one of the key areas where I share information for the speech pathologist who I mentor is in the area of language processing, because when there are academic referrals, that is a common area of struggle for students. So I always like to share information that leads therapists and teachers, as well as parents, down the path of understanding how to address the root cause of some of these issues that come up that can make school difficult for students. And so that's why I wanted to share my ultimate guide to sentence structure. When kids are struggling with comprehension, one of the common culprits is that they don't have a solid sense of vocabulary and sentence structure. So in the ultimate guide to sentence structure, I share some of those common sentence types that tend to cause processing issues. And I also share how to write some goals to target them, as well as some strategies for addressing them. So to grab that ultimate guide to sentence structure, just go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. So now please enjoy this interview with Jill Stoddard. 
Hi, everybody. I'm here with my colleague, Jill Stodder. Jill, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I'm a school psychologist, uh, and I work for a special education co-op in Bloomington. Um, but I also have been a psychologist for 12 years, I think. So I've worked in several different school districts, um, did my internship in a rural uh, special education co-op, and then um, worked as a psychologist in a more like suburban type of station mm-hmm. uh, for a couple years straight out of grad school, um, and then have been in a rural school district since then. Um, I have worked pre-K through high school, every single grade level, sometimes all at the same time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but currently I'm working um, part-time, two days a week, only at the secondary level. So I deal with sixth grade through 12th grade. Okay. So obviously with those, with that range of experience, you've probably been very involved in just the whole process of qualifying students or identifying students with learning disabilities in the schools. And obviously there's been a lot of change with how Mm -hmm. we do that over the past 10 years. So can you walk us through the old way of doing it and then tell us about the current way of doing it? Um, when I was in grad school, I feel like uh, the new way was starting to be talked about. Um, so I don't feel like I was ever trained in um, a whole lot of neuropsych testing and all of that stuff that I think had happened even before my time. Um, but certainly when I graduated, we were still using uh, discrepancy between IQ and achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, focus was definitely more on um, IQ. I would say, and kind of more analysis of the IQ testing, um, trying to pick out processing strengths and weaknesses, um, and ultimately eligibility decisions were made based on whether the student's IQ um, and achievement were commensurate or whether there was a discrepancy. And if the achievement was at least one standard deviation below the IQ, then we would consider qualification. Mm -hmm. For a specific learning disability. And is that how it was done, that specific criteria in the state of Illinois where we are, or was that nationwide, or does it vary from state to state? It is pretty much nationwide. And like I said, when I graduated, it was a little bit of a time of transition. I think Iowa was already sort of moving to the new way of doing things when I graduated. They were kind mm-hmm. of on the cutting edge of using response to intervention. Um, so I think it, it definitely varies by state. Uh, specific rules, but I think the trend was certainly used to be discrepancy and the trend is certainly now moved on to response to intervention. So. Mm-hmm. And so how does it look now? So now, um, I mean, I think basically what people decided was that we had a body of research that says what works for kids who struggle with academics, both in the area of reading and math mm-hmm. and some in written language, not as much, but, um, and that it didn't really matter anymore why yeah (laughs) as as what do we know will help them and so now what we do is we put an intervention into place um, usually long before special ed is even talked about Uh, as soon as we identify that the student is struggling on any level um, and then we uh, collect data to see how the student responds to that intervention and make changes to the intervention based on their response. So we may need to add another layer of intervention, make it more intense, or we may need to switch it up and try something different. But we're trying to figure out what works for that kid. Um, 
before we would ever get to the point of saying, okay, now we're going to write an individualized education plan for mm-hmm. them. Um, so yeah, now it's put something into place, see how it works, collect data and use that data to make decisions. So what kinds of challenges did you run into along the way in that process where, I mean, obviously you still, you're not necessarily saying there has to be a discrepancy, but obviously probably still needing some type of criteria as you're doing that. So what kinds of things came up? Well, I mean, I feel like it, it is a little confusing to talk about because we, we say like, oh, we don't do discrepancy anymore, but really we still do look for a discrepancy. What We're just looking for it in a different way. We're not looking for, is this student's IQ discrepant from their achievement? We're looking for, um, are their academic achievement scores based on a variety of measures discrepant from their peers? So essentially we're looking to see, have they fallen behind their peers in a significant mm-hmm. Um, problems that I've run into, (laughs) um, I think problems are when you have like a, an extremely mobile student, um, that doesn't are long enough to do that process because it is a long process. I think, I believe that it's better, um, but it does take a long time. People get impatient. There are parents who make referrals who just want, they just want the testing and they want an answer. They don't want go through the whole process um, because it takes time. And then, like I said in the beginning, those students who move around a lot um, and you may get started on an intervention and before you have even the minimum of 12 weeks to give it the time to work, they're already on to the next school district. And I probably feel the worst for those kids because they just don't stay anywhere long enough to be identified and maybe Mm -hmm. don't get services that they need. So, What do you usually do for those types of cases? Do you go ahead with it just because you know that they probably need it or? It depends on how long it's been going on. Um, I have, I've had a couple of cases where I felt like we could collect enough information to say, you know, this is a different kind of circumstance for this kid. They have received appropriate intervention. Um, There are gaps, but I think if we can get them in intervention even long enough just to say, okay, even with this intervention in place, we're not seeing any progress or mm-hmm. you know, I, I do bend the rules probably a little bit more for those kids, but I still feel like, you know, there are exclusionary criteria that say if there hasn't been appropriate in instruction yeah. that they really, it's an ethical dilemma because do you want to put a disability label onto a child who perhaps just hasn't been given right. appropriate instruction. On the other hand of that ethical dilemma, do you want to withhold services from a child who has no control over their circumstances and continues to get shuffled around? Yeah. I think it's a case by case thing. That's where I'm super thankful that I work with a team mm-hmm. <laughs> and that I have other people to speak into that and say, you know, I think this kid's different. I think there is a disability present. Let's gather what information we can to prove that versus this kid's just been shuffled around a lot and we need to give them whatever RTI services we can and it's not a special ed issue. Mm -hmm. Does that ever come up with students who have been homeschooled? Yes. And so how do you usually handle it then? Oh, I mean, that's really tricky too because um, I think, you know, some parents do a great job homeschooling their kids and they use research-based curriculum and Mm -hmm. I don't want to hold that against them. 
Um, but we also have cases where the student comes in and probably hasn't received appropriate instruction or at least hasn't received the level of intervention that they right. need in a research-based program. Um, and so I would say it's, it's similar to what I said before. It's case by case. I think you have to dig deep into their records. You know, with the kids who are mobile, going back to that, I think it's worth your extra time to track down their records. I would say that's probably the hardest thing sometimes, but take the time to do it. <laughs> if you can get a hold of the past like three or four school districts and get what you can from them, sometimes you can put together a decent case. Um, in the case of homeschooling, spending time with the parent, talking to them about what they used, um, what progress they've seen over time. Yeah, I think the most important thing is not letting those kids, not waiting for the referral. Because if right. I start referral right away, I still have to wait 12 weeks to give the intervention time to work. So I think the most important thing with the homeschooling situation or a mobile student is to just get it started up, make that referral right away. Because, you know, you may find that they're not eligible and that's okay, but at least I feel better sending them on to the next place knowing that we did our best to try to yeah. Is 12 weeks usually the time frame that you want to give an intervention before you decide if you need to add something or initiate an evaluation? Yeah, I feel like that's minimum. Um, and sometimes I'll change an intervention before 12 weeks, but I probably would never make an eligibility decision. Mm -hmm. before. I'm pretty sure without having in front of me that that's what my um, eligibility criteria states for SLD, mm -hmm. um, 12 weeks of intervention. Yeah. And so when you actually do a, in a uh, referral, do you sometimes still do testing and use a combination of things? I remember a while back we sat down and you had, it was kind of like a grid that the co-op uses that mm -hmm. says that the student either needs to have, you know, a, a D or an F in, in reading or be below a certain percentile or have this score on a standardized test. Do you still use something like that? I, yeah, I do. So they call that the discrepancy worksheet. Mm -hmm. um, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's helpful because um, what I like about the new way of establishing a discrepancy versus the old way is that the new way we use multiple sources of data. So I just feel more confident. I can usually come into an eligibility meeting. That worksheet has um, benchmarking data, um, it has classroom data, it has uh, group testing, and it has standardized testing on it. So I usually have at least three out of the four coming into an eligibility meeting, and I look for patterns, you know. So if I see maybe the student doesn't ever do well on our benchmarking, but at the junior high and high school we use MAP for benchmarking, and it's on a computer, and so not all kids are going to do their best on that. But I have also have, you know, park testing or um, PSAT um, or a standardized test that I've given. Plus, I have access to Skyward where I can see their mm -hmm. classrooms and I can determine if they're discrepant from peers in their classroom assessments because the nice thing about technology now is Skyward even shows me what the median test score mm -hmm. is. So. And that's the, the database with all the student information. Yeah. 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 And the so there was four, four things that are on the grid, and they have to meet criteria in how many of those areas to, to, for you to make them eligible? That was On the um, secondary, it's different for the elementary kids than it is mm -hmm. from the secondary. I believe it's three out of the four. Three out of four. So it's like a standardized test, 
grades. Um, well, with the standardized test, that's like an academic test that you would give them. Right. One-on-one. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, and then the standardized test like park would be another right. one and then grades, classroom data, and then benchmarking yep. data. So they have to meet below a certain level in three of the four of those yeah. in order for you to say they have a learning disability right? rather than just saying their IQ is discrepant from their academic yeah, performance. Given a test and one given achievement test, that it, whether there's a discrepancy or not. Mm-hmm. And so is that something that is, I know that's specific to uh, the, the co-op that mm-hmm. we're in, but is that from talking to other psychologists, is that used in across the state or in other states, or is that similar to what's being used elsewhere? I think it's similar. Um, every co-op kind of does their own thing. So the state puts out eligibility criteria, and you have to say the student is progressing at a slower rate than their peers. They're significantly discrepant from their peers. There's a need for special education, and then it goes through several exclusionary criteria. So the state gives you like a broad guideline yeah, um, criteria, and then every co-op kind of hones in on, okay, for us, what does it mean to be significantly discrepant from peers? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to not be progressing right. at the same rate as their peers? <laughs> so. I think it's similar, but I have seen other co-ops. I mean, we get paperwork from other people, and it, it looks different. Mm-hmm. But similar idea, like similar philosophy with using multiple sources. Yes. So obviously this is super confusing for all of us that are involved in the process of identifying students with disabilities. So obviously it's probably really confusing for people who aren't experts. Yes. What's the the most confusing thing that you've noticed? Like what's the most confusing thing for teachers and parents or administrators that maybe aren't trained in special ed? when you're trying to explain this to them? I honestly feel like the most confusing thing hasn't changed much, though. (laughs) I still feel like the most confusing things a lot of times for people is just understanding what it means to have a disability Mm -hmm. versus just being a struggling learner or somebody who's average or at the low end of average range. Um, I think a lot of – there's a misconception that any struggling learner should qualify for special education. And I still feel like that's the biggest confusion for people is that um, misunderstanding and that um, the expectation that special education provides any kind of services to anybody who's not at grade level. Mm -hmm. So getting people to understand the difference and to not panic if their kid doesn't fall in that range because there are there's a, a continuum of services now, which I think is the benefit of RTI that any kid who is struggling with learning at their grade level is going to get the help. It just may not be through special education. Mm -hmm. So have you found people are a little more anxious about it? Like it's not official. So are they getting what they want or, or is it um, where they kind of feel like the IEP is this magic bullet Mm -hmm. and that once it's there, it's all of a sudden going to change things. Mm -hmm. I do feel like that's the, I think that's part of the issue is that people think that um, once you get an IEP that it's kind of like an easy answer. Mm-hmm. I think knowing the background and, and certainly, like you said, it's confusing for us. So I understand how it's confusing to others. But um, I think there's, 
there's an expectation that if, well, if you would just give them an IEP, then yeah, but they don't realize that that it's going to look exactly the same as what they're getting now. Well, and that I think with RTI are the goal is, and I can't say we do this every time, but the goal is that we're going to figure out what works for your student, you know? So ultimately the, what we want to achieve is that okay, it's this intervention that is going to help them. And so we can put that on an IEP sometimes when that's appropriate, Mm -hmm. or we can implement that through like a tier two, which would be within the general education um, area. And so, but either way, the goal is to figure out what it is that will work. Mm -hmm. Whereas it used to be more like, okay, they qualify. Well, now we're going to start trying things to figure out, you know, like the wait to fail thing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think sometimes people don't realize that they actually get help sooner now. Right. I agree. Even though it's less, it looks less official, <laughs> but. Yeah. But what I do is that? that oh, there, go ahead. I think there's actually less confusion now explaining the process to them. Um, because I think talking about IQ versus achievement and talking through statistical analyses and standard deviations, I felt like I lost more parents <laughs> yeah. than I now when I'm explaining results and I'm able to say, okay, remember when we said we were going to try this intervention, here's a visual of what their progress looks like. And you can see that they didn't make the progress we were hoping they would make. And so they need help. You know, I feel like it's just a little bit more palatable for your average person. So, yeah. Yeah. So what about, we've talked about what's confusing for parents and maybe even teachers when they're worried that their students aren't doing what they expect. But what about for people who are other practitioners, like clinicians who might be doing this diagnostic testing, but they're not in the school systems and they either aren't working in the schools now, or maybe they've never worked in the schools. Have you found that there's some confusion between their understanding and our understanding, or maybe a little bit of a disconnect? Yeah, I think that there's a huge disconnect more so than there used to be. Um, because we don't do the uh, more medical-based approach anymore of testing to make a diagnosis, mm-hmm. which is probably what outside clinicians do. The other thing that, I mean, to be honest, what we're, we've been struggling with at the junior high and high school level is um, more so that uh, they'll make decisions without ever contacting the school. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's just helpful if you can see things across settings. Um, and hear from what that student looks like at school, the way they're performing at school versus what the parents are seeing at home. Because I think parents will tell you what they see and they're being honest. I don't doubt that, but it's not always the same as what we see at school. And so I think um, that's something I would like to see change that Mm -hmm. would be more willing to work with the school and get feedback from professionals within the school system. Right. So with that, you know, seeing as how there's some parents who might be seeking some outside referrals and maybe getting lots of pieces of input and, you know, trying to figure out how to help their kids. Have you ever had a situation where whether it came from just a parent wanting something or whether it came from an outside referral where someone was asking you to do something that you really did not think was in the best interest of the student? And you felt pressured to to do it, and if so, how was that handled within the team? Um, yeah, that happens somewhat frequently. I would mm-hmm. say, um, where either the parent or an outside 
clinician or a physician often Mm -hmm. will recommend things that we don't agree with. Um, You know, as I think through those situations, um, I feel like so few of them are, you don't always feel like you know for sure what's best for the kid. I think the decisions make for kids are often what, you know, it might be like, well, this is good, but this would be better. Yeah. (laughs) It may be like, you know, sometimes this works for kids and sometimes this works and we don't know, we need to try it. Um, So frequently I would say the way that it, it ends up happening is that we give it a try, we collect data, and then we come back to the table and we're able to say that didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> or it did maybe. Um, I think what I have to decide as a professional is the difference between um, when somebody suggests something that maybe I don't agree with, or maybe I don't think it's what's best versus when somebody wants me to do something that I know for sure is right thing because it's much more clear. Um, and in that situation, I mean, I can think of a couple times that's happened where I have felt very strongly that I need to act on behalf of the student. Um, and I feel like my best case, my best thing to do in that case would be to go to my superintendent or my special ed director and get support from them. Um, and I've had to do that before. And mm-hmm. I really not to let it get to that point because <laughs> like I said, I think a lot of times you can just try it. <laughs> you know, yeah. if you feel like it's like, well, it's probably not what I would do, but let's try it. Let's collect data and let's see what happens. But you know, a couple of times I have had to go to either my superintendent or my special ed director and say, you know, I, I don't feel like I can do this. I want to protect this kid. I want to make sure we're doing what's best for them um, and make sure that I'm supported by that person. And then mm-hmm. I feel like, go ahead with standing my ground. Yeah. So that happened. Mm-hmm. So how important when you have a situation like that for, and you have this whole team of people, have you been able to get to a place where at least the team at the school is all on the same page so that I you're usually, at least at a united front? Yeah. I usually feel like we are. Um, I'm sure there have been exceptions to that. Um, I just have a lot of respect for the people that I work with and the other professions. Um, I feel like I don't work with anybody that I don't, that I wouldn't think that their intention comes from doing what they think is best for that student. You know, Mm -hmm. we always agree on it maybe, but I think that people for the most part act on what they think is best for that student. Um, I do feel like normally we can, we come to terms before we even walk in a meeting of what we hope happen um, and come together as a team. And there are times there too, where you have to involve maybe a, a, an administrator or somebody to make the final call about it because we just don't agree. But I think ultimately it's important to come into those meetings as a united front, not in a way of like us versus you, the parent, not in right. that way, but more so so that it doesn't add to the confusion when you're making decisions that we know what we're proposing mm-hmm. and So setting boundaries and clear expectations about what's expected for the student and for that, whatever the meeting is. Right. And kind of like, okay, we can all just disagree about what we think is best, but let's go in with a clear recommendation so that this parent doesn't have to feel like they don't know what's going on or they're not understanding why we're not agreeing on something. Let's handle all that before the meeting so Mm -hmm. that 
you know, maybe it's, it's going to be different if the parent doesn't see eye to eye with us, but at least that can be handled in a meeting right? two professionals disagreeing. So, mm-hmm. and so on the, with, when we're talking about the evaluation process, obviously a lot of people who will be watching this are SLPs. And so our process obviously for, for diagnosing is a little bit different than the process that you're using. But where do you feel that the SLP adds the most value as far as just identifying students with disabilities and adding to that team? Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me as a psychologist in particular, the, the nice thing about working with an SLP is that we both have similar background in assessments and mm-hmm. and tests and data and things like that and so I feel like if you need an extra set of eyes or you need an extra um, opinion about test scores I think that we can collaborate pretty well on things like that Um, I also feel like for myself if I have a student who's struggling with reading or written language I definitely want to collaborate with SLP about how that you know, how they feel like language is impacting them in the classroom and how can we work together to make sure the goals are well aligned so that we're not doubling up on things and also so that we're not um, missing something that needs to be addressed or even like working in different areas when we could be working together. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's huge. Um, I, I think it's just valuable to have collaboration with all the team members. And so having the SLP as another person there to give input, um, I think compared to myself, the SLP is usually in the building more than I am. (laughs) So I think that they have more access to the kid. They have more access to the teachers and sometimes even act as that bridge between um, like the special ed process and what goes on day to day in that Mm -hmm. building. So I think so kind of a middle ground there. Mm -hmm. So when we do when we do evaluations, and I know this has happened a lot on evaluations where we've collaborated together, when you have those students who they seem to have a lot going on, and maybe it's because we don't have enough data yet, or maybe the evaluation didn't show that they meet criteria for SLD or another disability, but there's clearly something going on, and they end up just being speech and language. How do we how do you handle it when we say, okay, they're, we're going to write them an IEP. We're going to write them a, a speech and language IEP and work on language goals. But we know that there's probably more going on. It's just not showing up yet. Right. How do you make sure that those kids don't fall through the cracks and just yeah. stick with this speech IEP for the rest of the time they're in school without looking at it again? So this just came up recently, actually. And yeah. I think coming up, like you said, comes up a lot. Well, a few years ago. Yeah, um, it will continue to come up. But I think as I've gained more experience and watched kids move through the system um, year after year, I've honed in on what I think <laughs> would, would be the best practice there. Um, I'm not saying I'm right, but I think it just over time kind of going off my experience, what I see is I totally believe in early intervention. I believe that if we can get that kid help through a speech and language IEP, let's do it. Um, I do see a benefit to pulling back on that by the time they're in late elementary school, like fourth and fifth grade, um, kind of starting to pull back services, um, and see what they can do on their own. Because I think at that point you still have a speech and language IEP, you still have a speech pathologist 
as the case manager, somebody's monitoring the student. It's not like I'm suggesting we let them fail, you know, mm-hmm. it'd be more like, let's see data wise, let's collect data for half the year on how they do with the support, what kind of test grades they get when tests are read to them, um, what kind of accommodations they're using in the classroom, you know, kind of take data for maybe half the year and then pull back services and continue to take that data as a psychologist, that would really help me to see the need for those services mm-hmm. and a need to initiate an evaluation then as they move into kind of late elementary school, yeah. school um, to make sure we have the right kinds of goals in place and that they're more academic focused. So this would be more for a student who maybe they get like 40 minutes a week of speech, but then we've said, okay, because of their language goals, they might need a study hall with a special ed teacher. They might need to be in a co-talk classroom. So pull back on those things besides the 40 minutes a week of speech or besides the accommodations to see, do those really need to be on the IEP before we think, you know, okay, does this, should we look into something more than speech and language? Yeah. And I think you have to have parent support to do that. Mm -hmm. Obviously we don't want to be like not giving kids services that are on their IEP, but I think the parent and help them see that um, what we really want to do is make sure that the student is getting appropriate services. And almost as part of the reevaluation, we're collecting data um, to see how they do. I just view when I look at those cases, sometimes they come to me as they're approaching their three year reevaluation. And we haven't, because of now the way that we uh, address specific learning disabilities and the evaluations for those, if I don't have an, a big enough time frame, then it may be tough for me to make that call before the reevaluation is due. And so I think having more um, kind of foresight as they move into middle school to say, we need to start thinking about this. We need to start collecting data even outside of the reevaluation period mm-hmm. leading up to that. It would be really helpful, I think. So So even maybe the year before the reevaluation is due at that two-year mark, if you're thinking that a student might need more than a speech and language IEP, or if you're just not sure, if you think maybe you're dumping too many services on a a speech and language IEP, have those conversations with you to see what we need to be doing so that you have have enough information to make a decision as to whether to evaluate or change the the label? Yeah. Because I mean, what I see happening is that, um, you know, there are times when the alternative is that the student maybe gets to like seventh grade and is due for a reevaluation and gets dropped from services. Mm -hmm. So I think if you look at that as the alternative, I think a lot of times we can get the team and parents on board with, let's, let's kind of figure out what the student really needs now um, and what services need to stay on the IEP. And if they're really academic heavy and that's really what they need, then we need to open it up and look at it again. So. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a case where the student was dropped from services and it, and it ended up being the right thing? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. So some kids, some kids do end up just really needing a speech IEP for a few years and then end up being okay in junior high and high school. Since you're seeing kids, we have talked about how you had elementary and now you have the high school. So you're kind of seeing some of those kids who have been in the system for a while Mm -hmm. now that they're at the high school. 
Yeah, I think I've seen the whole gamut of like kids who do really well academically and really shine. Um, I think most of them fall, probably fall more in the category of being average students, you know, that mm-hmm. still have some, some things they need to work at. Yeah, I'd have to work a lot harder. Vocabulary doesn't come easy to them. Um, you know, school is language heavy. And so if that's right. ever an area of deficit, I think um, it's likely that they'll still have some concerns. But I think certainly we've seen kids who did not need the level of help that would have mm-hmm. them for special education. So. so they didn't necessarily need special ed services. They can find other means to, to get support or just work harder. Yeah, yep. And sometimes that's the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I go both ways where it's like, well, yeah, that kid really needed to just kind of be given a chance to do it on his own. And he figured out how to, to cope, you know, mm-hmm. and then I kids where it's like, oh no, they certainly needed that extra boost to get through. They probably right. wouldn't get without. So. So seeing as how you've been, you know, you've, you've seen kind of a range, you've been worked with a lot of different grade levels You've been you've been working for a while in the school systems. If you were talking to, let's say, somebody who just graduated from college, they maybe want to be, you know, either going into the schools to be a psychologist, speech pathologist, or any kind of teacher, and they want to be involved in the special education process. What advice would you give them? Um. I mean, I feel like really the most important thing you have to do is know how to get along with people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interpersonal skills are so important. I look at my job and I think, you know, the reason that I have any success is because of the relationships I have with other professionals in the building. Um, and I think you have to just know how to work with others, how to collaborate um, and I know that that's a hard thing because sometimes mm-hmm. you have it or you don't, <laughs> but I would say if you're going to work on anything, that's is when you walk into a school on your first day, don't think that the most important thing you're bringing to the table is the knowledge in your head. I think you have to walk in and say, okay, what can I learn from all these people? Um, and what can I bring to the table to be helpful? and look at it as more as like a, a working relationship and building those relationships. And um, I think that's where the good stuff really happens is when people feel comfortable and like they can trust each other and that they can make mistakes <laughs> and that um, they're truly a team, you know, that can work together. And that's where I think that's where our best work gets done. So Great. So I just have one more question for you before we wrap up. Kind of the opposite of that. Is there any advice that's being that you hear being given to those brand new college grads that you would say they should ignore or that's not great advice? I don't know that I've ever heard like anything specific that I would say that's bad advice. I do um, work with psych interns. And sometimes it's kind of what I already talked about. I kind of already alluded to it. I think that somewhere along the way, they get the message that they bring some like special knowledge to the table. And certainly they do. You know, I think as a psychologist, as an SLP, as a special education teacher, as an OTPT, you bring special knowledge to the table. Absolutely. But that knowledge is useless if people won't listen to you. Mm -hmm. People don't care what you have to say. 
And so I think I just see the mistake being made of like, I should be given respect because I have this special knowledge versus um, that idea that like, first and foremost, I need to build relationships. I need to become a part of this team. I need to learn to collaborate with other people. So it kind of is the same thing I already said, but that's yeah. the thing I see that I'm sort of like, oh, you have that backwards, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks. Thanks. Before I wrap up, I wanted to remind you one more time that if you want to have a guide to help you to teach the syntax skills that build language processing, then check out my ultimate guide to sentence structure. In this guide, I share the specific sentence types that tend to be difficult for kids with processing issues, as well as some tangible ways to write treatment goals and target them. So to check out that guide, go to drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com backslash sentence structure. So for now, we'll wrap up. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember that if you think this information will help a colleague or a friend, please feel free to share the show and this episode with them or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. 
Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.